Well, I've been blessed. Uh, the elders have given me uh, an opportunity here to teach. And like many of you all who have taught, I know that you know you learn a lot in the process. And that has definitely been the case for me. And selfishly, I took on the topic, a small topic, barely anything is mentioned in Scripture on this, and that is worship. Right? That, uh, okay, so this is a, this is a vast uh, big topic, but let's, let's, let's discuss this. But first, uh, a word of prayer. Father God, we come before you today, and we know that we are sinners. We are in desperate need of, of you, Lord. You are righteous and holy. We praise you for your work in our lives. Lord, I, would, I do not want to pray a generic uh, prayer, Lord, of our blessing upon this time, but I want our time this morning to have us be focused and draw nearer to Christ. And I pray this, Lord, through your word that it would be done only through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Anybody have any extra handouts? Uh, yeah, there we go. We've got handouts. There's, there's a total of two pages. Make sure you have them both, and we'll go through. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 29. What I'd like to do each week is have a, have a verse that will kind of be a central hub for us through the week. And these first two verses I'd like to be the case today. Psalm 29, uh, verses 1 and 2. A psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. What we're studying this morning is the topic of worship. Why is it important to talk about worship? Uh, I've, I've done a lot, of, a lot of reading here the past few months, and I thought I'd bring a few books here. Uh, one, of, one that I've really focused on uh, that has been a good framework for me uh, is by a guy actually named John Frame, uh, uh, Worship in Spirit and Truth. Um, you all probably are familiar with this one from John MacArthur, The Ultimate Priority. Worship is the ultimate priority. Uh, read this one a few years ago when I went with Charlie and, and the team to um, the Worship God Conference at Sovereign Grace Ministries done by Bob Coughlin, Worship Matters. Uh, next book is, is a, great, a great book just on the hows of worship, How to Worship Jesus Christ by Joseph Carroll. And then Brent recommended this recently, and I really enjoyed it. A guy who, this is just hot off the press, a young guy who wrote this named Mike Cosper called Rhythms of Grace. Kind of a vague title, but the subtitle says it. How the church's worship tells the story of the gospel. So that's been helpful in my understanding of worship. But why is it important? Uh, John Frame uh, says in his book, In evangelical churches, it is widely recognized that we should study Evangelism, Bible books, characters, systematic theology, counseling, preaching, and, and a whole host of things, many other things. Too rarely do we consider the importance of studying how our God wants us to worship. Worship is something we tend to take for granted, he says. And I think you have in your handout there a quote from Piper. John Piper says, only worship is an end in itself. Only worship should not be done as a means to achieving something other than itself. If you can think about that more deeply, there is nothing beyond worship. Worship is an end. There is, there is nothing that can be beyond it. Worship should not be done as a means to achieve something else, is what he says. A.W. Tozer says, worship is the missing jewel of the church. So, when I ask you this question, I'm just going to ask it in a blanket uh, statement. I want you guys to just shout out, uh, in an orderly way, I guess, uh, one, two, or three words that you think of when, when you think of worship, what do you think of immediately? Just worship in general, what do you think of? Okay, all right, so we got to start here. 
of prayer. Okay, I heard music. Praise. Meditation, sacrifice, I heard. Did I miss one? Confession, good. Okay. Liturgy, good. You could probably fill this whole page up if you wanted to, right? Uh, let's, let's just stop there. Uh, <coughs> that's good. I think, I think it's, it's essential that we look to the Word of God when we think about this. I know, I know most of us, uh, we, we think probably of that second one immediately. Uh, if I asked you the question, how did you think the worship was in the first service? What would you think of? Probably music, probably the songs that we sung. Uh, so we'll look, at, we'll look at what Scripture says uh, in a comprehensive study of the principles and practice of worship. So the theme of worship dominates the Bible. It is the central and it is at the center of everything Scripture commands of us. Let's turn to, to Mark 12. And if someone can read Mark 12, 29. 29 and 30. Mark 12, 29 and 30. This is the scribes. Uh, they're asking which commandment is the most important. Who'd like to read? Worship is affirmed, really, here, and, and this kind of goes with the title of MacArthur's book, the, the Ultimate Priority. This is the greatest commandment. I would like, like us to take, take us now through just an overview. The first week, this week, I have three weeks, so today we'll talk about worship's definition. You see in your notes the definition. We're going to go through Old Testament worship and New Testament worship and then get into some terminology and then finish off an application. Next week, we're going to get into some rules of worship, the hows of worship. And then the final week, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, controversy. So I'll probably save that for the last five minutes, park real close, and then head on out. But uh, uh, no, we, we, what we will talk about is hymns, praise songs, uh, a lot of the uh, uh, so the, the church uh, gathering in the culture of the lo local church context. So let's get into the definition of worship. There's a Hebrew word and a Greek word used, and I probably mess up the pronunciation, but uh, aboda, aboda is the Hebrew word, and you can write down here that this is a labor or a service. This is this Hebrew word is primarily on the service of God carried out by the priests in the tabernacle, and the temple during the Old Testament period. So with that said, what is this verb? This is an active verb. This is not passive. There is participation. We labor in service. Do we think of that when, uh, just I, I guess in our list, uh, there, there, are, uh, th there should be labor and service. So uh, the Greek word is latreia, literally bowing the knee. And uh, that's really what, what we think of when we think of worship. We, we bow, we bend the knee, we pay homage, we honor the worth of someone else. In English, worship is worth, so it's the same connotation. Letreia uh, is honoring someone superior to ourselves. We're not honoring ourselves when we worship. We honor someone else. So our first concern is that for someone else. So why don't we can combine these two? So worship is performing a service. 
performing a service, and then to honor someone other than ourselves. And what do you think is missing as I'm writing this down? Obedience is missing, right? Um, Maybe obedience could be tied up in service. If obedience is, we're performing service, we're obeying, we're honoring someone other than ourselves, there's still something missing. We're performing actions. When we perform actions, are we just doing it mechanically? Love. There's something that needs to be engaged with worship. What, what, would that, what would that be within us, our hearts, our spirits? So, so really we should add here, performing a service to honor someone other than ourselves, uh, engaging the heart. Yeah, it's clearly not a mechanical exchange. Performance implies action taken really by our sheer will, willpower alone. We must acknowledge that genuine worship, genuine worship doesn't exist without the latter part. Our hearts have to be engaged. There is no genuine worship without feeling or emotion. Worship happens when we engage our hearts and our affections toward God. Worshiping God is not intended to be a performance without the action of our hearts. I think we got that point. So really quickly in Matthew 15, eight through nine, What does Jesus say to the Pharisees? If you want to turn there, Matthew 15, 8 and 9. Jesus says to the Pharisees, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. What do we see here? We see that, that the heart is far from uh, the Lord, the people honor with their lips only. So our affections clearly have to be in place. And what is probably the best resource that we can think of when we think of uh, our, our affections? In the Bible, where would we go to talk on, on our affections? Emotions. Yeah, Psalms are, are probably the, a great resource. We see a variety of emotion that David goes through. Brokenness, contrition, gratitude, joy, hope, feelings clearly must quicken the heart for worship to be genuine. So we we continue the definition, performing a service to honor someone other than ourselves, engaging the heart. I've given you, and I think in your notes, some more definitions uh, from others. And one was that was in John Frame's book. Worship is the work of acknowledging, acknowledging the greatness of our covenant Lord, serving him, with all of our being, our heart, our mind, and our will. So our emotions, I'll ask you the question, are emotions a, a bad thing? They are not a bad thing in and of themselves. They're quite useful in engaging us holistically in worship. I'm going to read a quote to you uh, from, from Jonathan Edwards, a favorite of, of mine in talking of affections. I don't think ministers are to be blamed for the raising of the affections of the hearers too high. I don't think the ministers will be blamed for the raising of the affections of their hearers too high, if that which they are affected with be only that which is worthy of affection, and their affections are not raised beyond the proportion of their importance or worthiness of affection, I should think of myself in the way of my duty to raise the affections of my hearers as high as I possibly can, provided that they are affected with nothing but truth and with affections that are not disagreeable to the nature which, with which they are affected with. I think, uh, I think we just heard that in the sermon with Dan just talking of the, the, the there is this need of, of emotion, of, of affections. But um, maybe we could go through real quickly. I, I did see something that was very interesting to me. We could note of differences between affections and emotions. So, so very quickly, if you want to write this, I'm not going to write it down. If you want to write this down, If we compare affections and emotions, as I think we should, affections are strong inclinations of the soul. 
this is again Jonathan Edwards, strong inclinations of the soul that are manifested in thinking and feeling and acting. Okay, but let's compare the two. I'll, re I'll repeat that one more time. Strong affections are strong inclinations of the soul that are manifested in thinking, feeling, and acting. Do we see that there's more to it than emotion? Typically, affection, emotions are fleeting, but affections are long-lasting. Affections are deep. Emo emotions are superficial at times. Affections are consistent with beliefs. Emotions sometimes are overpowering. They just, we, just, we just drive off of an emotion, and, and it's not consistent with your belief. Affections always result in action. I thought that was good. If we are to have worship truly be engaging the heart, we are, we are doing something about that, and that comes from the affections in our heart. Emotions often fail to produce action. And, and what we just read from Edward's definition of affections, affections involve our mind. Emotions are, are, are a feeling that's usually disconnected from the mind, right? We have many of those thoughts. So clearly, God desires to stir our affections. Um, another, more definitions in your, on your worksheet there is from Wayne Grudem in Systematic Theology. He said, worship is the activity of glorifying God in his presence with our voices and hearts. Again, from... MacArthur, in, in his book, worship is honor and adoration directed to God. And then in, in another finding from a, comp, a complete expository dictionary, Vines, says this. You could just listen to this. The direct acknowledgement to God of his nature, attributes, ways, and claims, whether by the outgoing of the heart in praise and thanksgiving, or by deed done with such acknowledgement. So let's, let's go to Piper's quote for a minute. Uh, only worship is an end in and of itself. Only worship should be done as a means to achieving something other than itself. How do we, how do we miss this today? I think, I think we can get caught up in so many things that, and consider them the ends. How, how passionate are we for evangelism? Many of you all are. We, we should be. We, we are passionate about discipleship. We are passionate about... You name it. We can, we, can, we can list many things. We're passionate about music. We're passionate about uh, what, whatever it may be. But that is not the end. Piper is saying that, the, the, that worship is an end in and of itself. And, and so I had to ask the question, wait a minute, I, I know the Westminster Confession. The, the, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But I remember Piper, I read in Desiring God, he said the chief end of man is to glorify God, but there's a different word he uses, by enjoying him forever. And that was revolutionary to me, my, my faith, because I saw truly what, what that enjoyment was. It was, it was, it was really the means uh, uh, to, to that worship. So I, I, I take Piper to say worship is, is synonymous with glory almost. Only worship is an end in of itself, but we can, we can get so caught up with, with multiplication strategies, uh, get out there, reach, reach the world. That is the end. That is not the end. There is, there is no end beyond the worship of Christ. It stops there. That is his desire. And I would even argue that salvation is not an end. We may desire it to be the end. And I know, as many of you parents know, it's the desire we have for our kids desperately. We want them to be saved. But that is not the end. We want them to worship God, bring him glory, and go back to, to Psalm 29 again, ascribe the glory that is due his name. So that said, I think this is in your notes, redemption, uh, redemption is the means, and worship is the goal. So let's go back to Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord the glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. So in this hymn of praise, David focuses on a particular aspect of the rule of God. It evokes a response of awe at the revelation of God and, the and, and further on down the rest of the psalm over the, his enemies. We are to ascribe to the Lord glory and strength due his name. 
David is praising the Lord for his rule and his sovereignty, his majesty in relationship to his people and all of his works. So the glory ascribed to the Lord, the glory due his name, is in respect. And, and it is the respect and honor ultimately that God deserves, is it not? Uh, I think it's helpful. What, what, what is ascribed? There, in the King James, it says, give unto. We are to ascribe to the Lord, give unto the Lord. Uh, can, can we give God glory in the sense that we are adding to his glory? No, no, we can't. We are not adding to his glory. So what does ascribe mean? How do you all take that? What, what, is, what does ascribe mean? Reflect. What else? Acknowledge. Yeah, we are, we are acknowledging it. We are, we, yeah, and it's, it's a good word, reflect. We, we are considering and acknowledging, recognizing the glory of God. John MacArthur laid some good weight on God's glory in his book. He said it's no trivial concept. His definition of glory is this, something that is worthy of praise or exaltation. It's a brilliance. There's a beauty. There's a renown. But he breaks up glory in two ways, and I liked it. He said one, one way is, is God's intrinsic glory. And the other is his ascribed glory. What is what is it intrinsic glory? He has it within himself. It's inherent. God's glory. If if we worship him or not, he is still going to be glorious. There is nothing that we can do to change that. We are talking here in Psalm twenty nine about ascribed glory. So that was in, that was in, intrinsic. We're talking about God's ascribed glory here in Psalm twenty nine. Can we add to God's glory? No. Like Wendy said, we, we recognize, we acknowledge the glory of God as we digest his word and we respond accordingly and we, we magnify his name. So let's quickly go through, what I'd like to do is just go through briefly uh, as well as fast as I can, the Old Testament. Uh, and, and then we'll do the New Testament. So this is going to be quick. Yes. Magnify, yes. Right. Yeah. So, so Phil just asked, "What does magnify mean?" We are, we are, we are acknowledging, we are recognizing. But you said the word reflect, Chris. I think that does hint at at the magnification of God. So, what? Let's get in. We'll get into that as we go through. Yeah. Great. Great point. So, let's ask the question: Did worship exist before creation? How so? What else? What about in the context of the Trinity? I think before discussing creation and Adam and Eve, we must consider the truths of God's fellowship in the Trinity. Each member ascribed worth to one another. The Spirit pointed to the Son. The Son pointed to the the Father to glorify each other. So we must have a Trinitarian view of worship. Worship cannot take place without, without a member of the Trinity. And uh, I think I heard it once from uh, Mark Driscoll a while back. On, he defined the Trinity as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. Have we heard that before? I mean, I just, I almost laughed at it because, but it's so true. In a lot of ways, we, 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 just, we just push aside the Holy Spirit. We have the Father and the Son, and, and we just kind of keep it quiet on the, on the Holy Spirit. Worship, genuine worship, doesn't happen unless we have the full of, of Trinity, and we we just tend to disregard that. Worship is impossible apart from the Holy Spirit. In Bob Coughlin's book, he said this: Scripture describes the Spirit as the member of the Trinity who reveals the reality, presence, and power of Christ to us. Who did that? The Spirit did that. The Spirit is revealing the reality, presence, and power of Christ to us, and then. Let's turn to, to Ephesians 2.18. I think you see a picture of this. Ephesians 2.18. For through him, referring to Christ, through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Do we see just one, one, one person of the Trinity there? There's, there's all three. We, 
we have to see that Paul proclaims that through Christ, all believers have access to, in one spirit, to the Father. So, quickly, Adam, Adam and Eve enjoyed a wonderful relationship and friendship with God, but then they disobeyed God's word and were cursed, cast out of the garden. God didn't abandon them, however. Worship continued even after that. God wanted his people to worship him with a consciousness of their sin and guilt and what he had done to free them of that guilt and power of sin. So we see in the Old Testament that God has called out and separated a people of his own, namely Israel. So much of Israel's worship is really hard to follow, however. Uh, I think it's, it's helpful just to do a brief overview, and that's what I'd like to do today. Uh, in, in talking of Old Testament worship, let's talk now of, of who God met with in the Old Testament directly. So meetings with God. God met with Adam and Eve even after the fall. Who else did he appear to? We know he appeared to Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Moses, many others. In all these meetings, God appeared in his majesty as the Lord. Each one was filled with fear. And that's what I want to think about here is the fear. Do we consider this? Think of Isaiah. And real quickly, Isaiah 6. Let's turn there. Okay, so this is Isaiah's vision of the Lord. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Who the, the whole earth is full of his glory. Verse 4, and the foundations of the threshold shook. And the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, what was, what was Isaiah's response? Woe was me. For I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. Did God, did God stop there? Verse 6 and 7. So we know his response. He, he, feels, he knows he is, is unclean. Yet amidst his sin, Isaiah was forgiven. In, in verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. We see that Isaiah was forgiven. God provided a sacrifice, or symbol, well, I should say a symbolic atonement. A coal from the altar touched his lips. He was not the same. And when God reveals himself, is he the same to, to you? I would hope not. He is, God is, once he reveals himself, you will not be the same. You will worship him. How often do you hear, though, uh, and even people talk, I've heard it many times, I just want God to speak to me. And I want, I want him to speak to me directly. What did we just read in the Old Testament? Do we understand the severity, the, the trembling that, that took place? The whole building shook. And, and, and what did he say? Isaiah said his, he was unworthy. These meetings with God are awesome and terrifying. And, and I think uh, in Frame suggests in his book, we should be satisfied, even thankful that our meetings with God today are less direct. They're less direct, but they're just as real. Surely we can be thankful that we stand before God in Christ who has borne the fearsome wrath of God in our place. So uh, let's ask the question here, why did the exodus happen? What was the goal of Israel leaving Egypt? What's that? No, go ahead. That they may worship. This, I, this is Exodus 7.16. It says, God has demanded of Pharaoh, let my people go so that, purpose, let my people go so that they may worship me in the desert. God brings them out so that he might bring them in, into his assembly, the great company of those who stand before his face. God's assembly at Sinai is therefore the immediate goal of Exodus. God brings his people into his presence that they might hear his voice and worship him. So, now we see the reason for the exodus. God desires to reveal himself, bringing his people into his presence. Why? For the purpose uh, that, we, that we would hear his voice and worship him. But we know that the worship like this at Mount Sinai would not remain in session forever. Therefore, God established other festivals in which the whole nation would assemble uh, a number of times a year, three times a year. However, uh, was Israel a unified nation? As described, no. God 
scattered, they turned aside to idols. Rather than assembling, God scattered them in the exile. So let's go to Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66, 18. And I want, to th- want you to think of the future here. Think of what will take place. Isaiah 66, For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And just like in Revelation 15, 3 and 4, that we know that we are great and, and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who, who will fear you and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. And this is what he says. All nations, in Revelation, all nations will come and worship you. We know the future in worship is that all nations will, will God will has promised that his purposes for Israel ultimately will one day be fulfilled. So back in Psalm 29, Let's talk about that last phrase in chapter, verse 2. We're ascribing to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord glory to his name, worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. So what, what, is, what is that? What is the splendor of holiness? We know that the root of holy is separate. Israel was God's people separated from the world. But what does this look like? Psalms, uh, we can give a little more detail and clues to that in Psalm 96. And I know many of you all probably thought of this when you read Psalm 29. Psalm 96, very similar. Psalm 96, verse 7. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Sound familiar? Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. But here we have a clue. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Again, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. We have two clues there in 8 and 9. We bring an offering. Worshiping the Lord in the splendor of holiness is bringing an offering, coming into his courts and trembling before him. That is the result right there. Uh, That is is probably a a better understanding of of what it really means to, to, to worship in the splendor of holiness. What is the importance of holiness? Hebrews 12 says, Hebrews reminds the believers to strive for the holiness without which, without the holiness, no one will see the Lord. David says we are to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. God established rules for prayer and sacrifice. He he established rules for government, diet, circumcision, feast, uh, uh, a work six, rest one cycle. God's rules impacted uh, all of life. David knew that we are to worship the Lord in holiness. So now let's talk about the tabernacle, temple, and synagogue. We know in the temple, we've recently heard sermons in John, uh, through John. Pastor Dan has led us with a rich understanding of the, one of the primary uses of the temple. It was to remind us that God has a desire to reveal his presence with his people. Exodus 25.8, great verse. Exodus 25.8 says, And let, let them make me a sanctuary. Why? that I might dwell in their midst. God gave specific instructions of how to make the tabernacle. We know of the two parts, the holy place and the most holy place, and they were separated by the curtain. The tabernacle was portable, and that was appropriate. They were were wandering all over uh, in the wilderness. Then we learn of God's desire for the more permanent structure. What was that? The temple. So it's just the same furniture, just more of it, and it's not portable. Uh, what was the purpose of the tabernacle and temple? You have a list there. We won't go through all of them, but I think the first one is probably key. Sacrificial worship. That's what took place in the temple, in the tabernacle. It was, the sw- it was for swearing of oaths. It was for prayer, singing of praise, and teaching. Some of those you have here. It is always good for me to shed light on what this is not. You understand truth when you, when you compare it to what it is not. What is, what is the, the temple not? Notice it is not a place to be ministered to. The temple is not that. The temple is not a place to be entertained. It's also interesting to note how specific God was in laying out the details. I think I've heard it read, uh, read someone wrote down, it's over 240 verses on all the details to the tabernacle. 240. How many verses do we have on creation? 
there's 30 or so. So you have over 200 devoted to this, yet 30, where do we, it's just not, not the topic today, but interesting to note that, that distinction. Above all, God designed that the tabernacle and temple is clearly a means by which his people would worship him and dwell with his people. So uh, this was interesting to me. I read this from Mike Cosper. Uh, he, said, he said something that I, I hadn't thought of. Usually the temple is so far removed from me. I, I don't go to a temple. I, I don't use that word. I don't think anything of a temple. That is Old Testament. I don't even, I don't process with, with what that really means. But have we considered that the temple, even in the Old Testament time, was a means of God's grace? It is a means of God's immense grace. Was God required to provide a way of redemption to Israel? Was he, was he required to do that? His quote here is great. By inhabiting a temple, Beyond, behind layers of curtains, high walls, and levels of protection, God shields his people from the, the unbearable, fiery reaction of sin's exposure to, the, to holiness. We see God's grace in the temple. So in, in, now let's move to the synagogue. The synagogue literally is a bringing together. As a contrast to the temple and tabernacle, there's, there's no sacrificial worship that occurs in the synagogue. It's... it's um, it's primarily used for what? What would you say the synagogue was, was used for? The teaching. And, and someone else said pray, praying. So teaching and praying. Um, the origins of the synagogue are really obscure. The, original, uh, the origin of the Jewish synagogue is probably to be assigned to the time of the Babylonian exile. Having no temple, the Jews assembled on the Sabbath. They had no, they had no temple, but they assembled on the Sabbath. They heard the law read. And they practiced it and continued in various buildings until the return. So Jewish tradition cites that, that Ezra is the founder of the synagogue. Uh, we know that the temple was destroyed how many times? Three times and was rebuilt twice. The second temple was built after the exile. Herod the Great built the temple that existed during, during Jesus' earthly ministry. So we know that Jesus attended and taught at these. He was there at the synagogue. And, but yet, I still find it interesting in, in all this study, how much detail was given to the tabernacle and temple and how much detail is given to the synagogue. You, you barely see, you don't see much is my point in terms of how the service is organized, what, what, what it should look like. Uh, you don't see uh, much given to, to what that should look like. The specifics are not mentioned. How much prayer? How much time for teaching? We'll discuss this more you know, next week and, and, and the following, Lord willing, but we can continue this point. We could point to God and leave these details, maybe, uh, to the discretion of the people. Is that what God is referring to? Could he be leaving this to the discretion of the people? We'll talk about that more. So uh, spontaneous worship. Let's talk of this. We've talked now of the temple, the tabernacle, and the synagogue, and now uh, we've seen in the Old Testament through all this, God met with people in the specific times and places, but yet we also know that spontaneous worship happened. With Daniel, we see times. What did Daniel do throughout the day? He was, he was praying throughout the day. In Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, we see that we should be teaching kids, teaching our children when we sit and when we rise, we walk by the way, we lie down, and when we, everywhere we go. Um, in all of the Old Testament, we, we've seen different kinds of worship. Uh, particular meetings God had with, with men, with the tabernacle, the temple, the synagogue, and now spontaneous uh, worship. It was God's intention to desire and draw close to his people. I think that's really my main point there, that God is, was intentional in his desire to draw close to his people so that they would worship him. And so that you could truly say in Psalm 29, ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name. So moving to the New Testament, with that as a great backdrop, Hopefully, it's been a good discussion to get deeper insight because I see the beauty of the gospel ultimately in this. Uh, we can read the Old Testament, fortunately, with the view of the New Testament. We have a new covenant. Christ has come. What has he done? Has he fulfilled all of these? Let's, let's point to the, the first one. In the meetings that God had with men, we, we, we worked through all of that. God met with all of these people. But in John 1.14, God says he tabernacled with us. What does John 1.14 say? I'll have it memorized. And the word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. So in, in Christ, we meet with God. What about in worshiping God in the splendor of holiness? How does that point to Christ? Well, in Christ, we are made holy. In the Old Testament sacrificial worship, Christ, ultimately, we know, was the, the ultimate sacrifice, the one-time sacrifice. We do not have to sacrifice bulls and goats in continual basis. Christ has died, giving us the ultimate one-time sacrifice. He's also the one who brings us the ultimate sacrifice as, as he represents us as our high priests in Hebrews 6 through and 13, or and, and 8, Hebrews 6 and 8. So Christ is our, is our high priest. What about the tabernacle, the heavenly tabernacle? I think this was neat. We talk all about the tabernacle. The heavenly tabernacle is the ultimate dwelling of God's presence. Our sins are dealt with through the blood of Christ, that we might receive eternal fellowship with God. Let's go to John 2. We should know this. I've been through this many sermons here. John 2, uh, verse, let me back up to uh, what, what Jesus says in 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But what was he speaking about? He was speaking, the temple is now his body. So in the tabernacle, in the temple, this is Christ. This he speak, Christ has fulfilled this. And, and even when you look at all the furniture, it, it points to Christ. The altar points to Christ himself. The basin uh, is the washing. Christ is completely clean. The lampstand, Christ is the light of the world. What about, what about the bread and the manna? We know that Christ feeds his people. The altar of incense, Aaron's rod, what is that pointing to? The, well, well, the high priest, Jesus is our high priest. But what was the incense? What are we offering to God? Prayers. So, so and, and Christ is interceding for us on our behalf. The most holy place this opened at the death of Christ, and we now boldly come to the throne of God. The ark is God with us, Emmanuel. And the tab tablets of the law, how would you, what would you guys say there? The tablets of the law, how does that point to Christ? Sorry. Fulfillment of the law. What do we have in our hands? The eternal word of God. I think that's... It's definitely pointing to Christ. In the synagogue, how does that point to Christ? We, we already looked through in the future. There will be someday a great assembly, not just of Israel, but all nations we know will come before and worship. So really, I could, I could take the rest of, of the year in the Sunday school class to try to figure out all the ways that Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament. But we clearly see that our worship should be full of Christ. There is a, there is a difference here. that We are not worshiping in the same way in the Old Covenant. We worship through Christ. He is the fulfillment and the most prominent in all the things that we do. So if all is fulfilled in Christ, I guess I'll ask the question, what, what remains of us? If everything's fulfilled, what do we do? Do we have any need for ceremony? Do we have any need for gathering together? Like this morning, why, why are we here? We're here to worship. commanded to. We know there's a promise in Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered in my name. There's a promise, there I am among them. Uh, the birth of the New Testament church at Pentecost, Acts 2. I know Matt went through this and, and Andy, it's been great. The church met for prayer, teaching, sacrament, discipline. They met for all of these things. They even met for gift giving for needs. Uh, Pentecost was the time of first fruits. I'm quoting here from uh, systematic theology. Pentecost was a time of the first fruits, beginning of the great harvest of redemption. Peter preached the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel, and the Spirit had been poured out. The worship of the new age had been ushered in. The church, or the assembly for worship, was praising God. So now we see God in a special way when we when we meet together. Uh, I just I think it's amazing as we. We all have Christ in us, and yet we meet together. Think of how much that is. Even in this room today, we are, we are blessed by that. 
Also, there's a result. Unbelievers will be driven to worship. We know 1 Corinthians 14, 25. What happens to the unbeliever in 1 Corinthians 14? He falls down and he says, God is really among you. Are we, are we in our worship services worshiping the Lord such that that happens? Is that happening in our hearts? Uh, we also know it's not optional. Uh, Hebrews 10, let's go here. Hebrews 10, 25. I think this is going to what Brad was saying uh, in verse 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir one another up in love and good de- love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. So with all that said, I think it's important to see that worship can be really shown in two contexts. There's a broad sense of worship and there's a narrow sense of worship. And what we're talking about here is the narrow sense in terms of meeting in, in, the, in the context of corporate worship. Uh, also, Cosper mentioned in his book that there's, there's worship that is scattered, scattered worship, and there's worship that is gathered. So it's essential that we have all of this Old Testament, New Testament study as a backdrop so that we understand really vocabulary because like what we say, when I say how was, how was worship, you guys typically may think music. Fortunately, we've got a lot more answers up here other than music uh, that you guys gave. I like that. But uh, we, we tend to focus on, 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 it could be negative if we uh, go to the other spectrum. If you just look at the Old Testament, is that how we should worship in the Old Testament? If we look at it in those terms, we could misunderstand Christ's fulfillment of it. So the broad sense is, I, I'll ask the question, is not all of life worship? All of life is worship. We do meet together like this, but all of life is worship. Uh, there is a broad sense. All I read this, I like the phrase, all of the earth is God's temple. Consider that. All of the earth is God's temple. I think in, I've been blessed by this study, just talking with my wife and working through this, and I've been just contemplating. I, I see the benefits of the narrow sense of worship. I've been here seven years, and I've seen the love of God poured out amongst us. Uh, you all have been, seen that as well. Yet I see that there's so much need for me in the broad sense of worship. What am I doing uh, to consider that all of the earth is God's temple? We have seen in our study thus far, it seems to be a special emphasis, really, on God's desire to reveal, to be, to be near to his people. It's in these times we must understand worship. All of our life, as we use our gifts, is a fragrant offering, acceptable and pleasing to God. What, do you, what verse do you think of when you think of that? or sacrificing to God, being pleasing to him. Um, I think of Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing. This is your spiritual act of worship. So uh, we can term our gatherings as worship services, right? But sometimes it can be damaging if we only see worship from the Old Testament perspective. Worship that occurred in the Old Testament is not what we do Sunday after Sunday. We gather each week. We understand the rich promises of God's nearness to us, but we see there's something special about coming together in Christ. And I just talked to you about that personally, a personal experience I can give there. Um, We can say in confidence that the Lord actually does draw near to his people right now in this context. So... uh, also, I thought was interesting was the discussion of, of uh, worship leader. Uh, you, you hear this. That was, that was a, a big point here in uh, Bob Coughlin's book, Worship Matters. He said, should we use a different term to define the role of the one who leads the congregation in song? It, in a worship service, you're not just singing, right? What else are we doing in our worship service as we meet together? reading God's word, we're hearing the preaching, we are, we are being ministered to, we have times for offering and prayer. Some argue that maybe using music minister is good, or maybe, maybe a worship pastor. Uh, it's, I think Charlie's here, we could talk to, uh, call him our, our service leader, our corporate worship leader, our lead worshiper, but Bob Coughlin's favorite was the music guy. <laughs> I like that. Because what did that do? I mean, 
immediately, you, you know, you, it, there's, there's things there that we can go into. All to say the term is, it, altogether, the term worship uh, leader is not all that misleading, ultimately. So if we use it, that's not an improper thing to say because it succinctly communicates that our, what, is, what is our goal. Our goal is to, to lead others in, in praising God. So Coughlin has a definition. A faithful worship leader magnifies the greatness of God in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit by skillfully, and I like this, by skillfully combining God's word with the music, therefore motivating the gathered church the, in the worship in the narrow sense and to proclaim the gospel, to cherish God's presence and to live for his glory. So let me ask the question in summary. What, what, is, what, does God, what does it mean for God to draw near to us? Why, why does he draw near to us? That's right. That's right. We we clearly see that he draws near for a, for a purpose, and that purpose is to draw us to a deeper understanding of our sin. If it doesn't point to Christ, if it doesn't point to our salvation in Him, it, it is it is pointless. Uh, God is intentional on leading us. He reveals himself to us so that we would look to Christ and, and give him glory and, as Phil is saying, magnify uh, the Lord. God draws near to us so that we see the gospel. And, and because we see the gospel, we turn and we worship him. It, redemption is the means, and worship is the goal. Um, let's go to John 4.23. I was so blessed by uh, John MacArthur's book here on, uh, I think his book, Ultimate Priority, really uh, was a summary of what uh, Jesus' response to the Samaritan uh, woman was. It was just wonderful to see that uh, worship in the New Testament is, is uh, with Christ is different. It is, it is not uh, at, at the place that the Samaritan thought it would be. It is, it, it is, it is different. So let's go to John 4. If we start at uh, 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. For the hour is coming and is now here. This is what, what I want to focus on. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. When Jesus was saying in Luke 19, he said uh, that he came into the world to seek and save that which is lost. Why did he seek and save that which is lost? We see right here in verse 23 that the Father, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. That's what he wants. He wants worshipers. And there is an eternal worship that is to come. We talked about that, uh, all the nations that will come and bow down. So let's now look to application. Uh, what have we learned of God's character here? Are we to take anything lightly in terms of uh, God meeting with us? God, is, God has done a rich work through Christ in meeting uh, with us in salvation. He pours out his grace and his love to us through Christ. We come to a deeper understanding of our sin. How serious does God feel? deal with uh, his revealing his presence. Oh, we, we talked about that. Another question, what does it mean for God to draw near to us? It means that he loves us. He, he draws near to us to, to receive glory and honor and strength. What is the difference between the way he draws near to us in worship and the way he draws near to us in other times? And, and the question you could ask yourself. But let's talk now on... Uh, on uh, the benefits of genuine worship. There are clearly benefits. Gen worship is not genuine, remember, if it is just here. Uh, you perform a service. Anybody can perform a service and honor somebody. We do that every day at our work. Uh, you know, if we're, if we're uh, just performing a service alone or we just serve our wives by not engaging our heart, we, we, we can do these things. But genuine worship is engaging the heart, and the results are good. We, we, we delight in God. 
the, the verse in my wedding ring that uh, Amy blessed me with is Psalm 30, 37.4. Uh, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. God delights in us. We draw near to God. It's the amazing unseen reality of the new covenant that we are near to him. God draws near to us. God ministers to us, and the Lord's enemies flee. And I think I have on your last point there that the unbelievers know they are in God's presence. So really, what is, what is the proper tone of our worship? And think of it in terms now of broad and narrow. We see that, that all of our intellect, our will, and emotion is, is all interconnected. You can't remove one. Each is dependent on one another, and none can function properly apart from each other. Because if you think about it, emotions provide the intellect for the data and analysis, yet the intellect provides emotions with the direction and perspective. So Psalm 2, though, is, is great. Psalm 2.11, it says this, We fear, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. What do you see there? Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice in trembling. We fear and we rejoice, and these things do not conflict. The tone of worship, we should long to worship. We should long for his word. I read this story, and I'll say it briefly. I uh, read this, it was just so moving. This man was uh, in a, in a was the, the, the hotel was on fire, and he couldn't escape, and he was burned severely. He almost died, and the result of his accident was that he, he lost his sight. And his biggest uh, fear was not being able to, or his biggest concern was not being able to read the Word of God as a Christian. He said, what do I do? And he said, I have, to, I, have to, I have to learn Braille. I have to learn how to read the Word of God in Braille. But he couldn't. His entire body was burnt. Everything was singed. He had no senses on his fingertips anywhere. But, but we find that he ended up finding a way. Uh, he used his tongue. He read Braille with his tongue. And he read through the Bible three times, I read. That... Do we long for the Word of God? Do we long for the Word of God like this? We have it before us, and we, we, we easily push it aside and get so busy in life. Uh, we, we need to long for His Word. Clearly, it's an important thing to talk of worship, because what did Christ have with Satan in Matthew 4? What was Satan's chief ploy, tactic of Christ? What did he ask of Christ? down to me. Yeah. Worship me. That's all you have to do, Christ. Worship me. This is the creator of all. The creator of, of everything is going to worship Satan. Uh, you, will, you will serve the one you worship. Christ understood this. You will serve the one you worship. Praise God that Christ did not succumb to Satan's plan. So I, in summary, our chief end is, is the worship of God, our Father, Jesus Christ, and there's nothing that is beyond our worship as we view all of these things discipleship, Bible study, everything in life, nothing goes beyond. That that is not the end. Worship is truly the end. From eternity past, uh, God ascribes worth to himself. And will in eternity future be glorified as we hold worship to a true definition. And we talked about it here, but also in, in your notes, the work of acknowledging the greatness of our covenant Lord. We are to serve him with all of our being heart, our mind, and our will. Next week, we'll talk on the hows of worship. We'll go into, uh, did God prescribe rules for us, us to worship? And, and we'll primarily, well, we'll, we'll go on both broad and narrow. Uh, but uh, I was going to say primarily the narrow, but we need the broad, as I'm finding in my life. So let us close in a word of prayer. Father, this topic is is just amazing. We, we, we are humbled when we read of the reason you have created us to worship you, Lord. You long to receive uh, our worship. I pray that we would be pleasing in your sight. We cannot come before you, Lord, if it was not for Christ. And so we pray that in all things that we look to, when we think of worshiping to the, this week as we, as we worship you, uh, remaining here in this, in, in this local context today, this morning, but also in the broad sense, in all of life, we are to give praise to you and glorify you in all that we do. Give us the strength to do so, Lord, as we know you will. You're faithful to complete the work you began in us. I praise you for, praise you for that, Lord. Thank you for Christ, and we pray it in his name.
Amen.